Our third reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, Merry Christmas to uh, all of you. Uh, welcome to Exilic. I want to welcome you here in particular if it's uh, your first time visiting us today. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here. And this coming Tuesday on Christmas Eve, I am going to do what I do every single year, and I'm going to go to my cousin's house. There's going to be a lot of good food. We're going to play White Elephant, and we're going to boo people that bring bad presents. And at the end, we're gonna vote on who brings uh, the worst present. And their names get immortalized on a random statue of a dog where we write their name, what gift they brought, and what year they brought it. Afterwards, we're gonna play bingo with my almost 100-year-old grandmother. And there'll be prizes for that too, typically work swag or contraband from work. And it will be like every year. It will be fun. It will be filled with laughter, and it will be a really, really good time. The next day on Christmas, I'll be flying halfway across the world to Korea uh, to visit my father, who had a stroke last April and is still in the hospital. Uh, the right side of his face and the entire right side of his body is completely paralyzed, and he cannot talk and he cannot walk. And to make the situation slightly more complex, he does not know that I am coming. The holidays, uh, for whatever reason, uh, is the best time of year, uh, but sometimes it can feel like the harshest time of year. And so whether it's the sharp pangs of loneliness that we feel that are even sharper during this time, or maybe it's too much heavily concentrated family time, or you're constantly feeling like you have to maneuver through a landmine of various personalities, or perhaps you're staring at the empty chair at the dining room table that was once inhabited by the person you loved. Uh, one thing is for sure, nobody gets through a broken world unbroken. And so my question to you this morning is this, what consoles you, what comforts you when you're feeling down? Maybe it's your soft bed and weighted comforter. Maybe it's traveling and getting away for the weekend. Maybe it's an alcoholic beverage. Maybe it's overworking so you don't have to think about anything and you can be completely distracted. But what consoles you when you're feeling down? 
this chapter is about a man who gets less press than even the animals at the manger. But this is a man that was in need of serious consolation, not only on his behalf, but was seeking consolation on behalf of his people. And his name was Simeon. How do we know that he was in need of consolation? Well, read with me verses 25 to 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. There it is in verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel for himself and on behalf of his people. And the reason why Simeon was seeking consolation wasn't because he broke up with someone or he got fired from his job or didn't get the promotion, but the reason why Simeon was seeking consolation was because he faced an existential angst that we all face, typically the older and older you get, and that is death. Uh, especially when we get older, we feel it more and more acutely. And one of the, one of the uh, clues that we have that Simeon was older and on the brink of entering into another world is found in verse 29. And in verse 29, Simeon says, after seeing this baby, Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now you may, uh, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And there's two things that we see in verse 29. First of all, God is the author of life, which is why Simeon is saying, you may now dismiss me. But the second thing we see in verse 29 is the fact that this kind of language when someone says, you may now dismiss me, is, is not the kind of language that a young person uses, but it's the kind of language that an older person uses uh, when, they are, when they're on the precipice uh, of this life. And so when we think about Christmas and when we think about this old man, we should not be thinking about Santa Claus but when we think about Christmas and we think about an old man with a long white beard, who we, who we should be thinking about is this, this person named Simeon. And you can almost picture this old man holding up this tiny newborn baby saying, you, not a relationship, not marriage, not a promotion, not having kids, but you are my consolation. You are my hope. You are my salvation. And it wasn't because Simeon was this morbid person that was constantly thinking about death or anything like that, but it was really because Simeon was human and he was thoughtful. Typically, the way that the average person thinks about death is like an ostrich. You know what an ostrich does when it's cornered by a crouching lion? Instead of running away, the ostrich buries its head underneath the sand because when something is out of sight, it is completely out of mind. And so there is a sense in which ignorance is bliss. And so that's how we sort of approach death as functional ostriches. We just don't think about it. But thoughtful people throughout history, philosophers, great thinkers, have always pondered the, the meaning of life and, and what happens uh, after we die. And the whole point of this chapter is that Christmas is the consoling message that we all need. Not only for the pain and suffering we experience in this life, but also when it comes to uh, death itself. You subtract the Christmas story from the human story, and there isn't as much consolation. There isn't as much hope. I do want to read for you uh, something on the first page of your bulletin that captures uh, 
the lack of consolation that we have when we subtract Christmas from our human story, and it comes from one of my favorite philosophers, Frederick Nietzsche, and in Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche says, the thought of suicide is a great consolation. There's that word again. By means of it, one gets successfully through many a bad night. And of course, suicide is always a permanent bad solution to a temporary bad problem. It never really consoles. Look with me at uh, the next quote from Lawrence Krauss, the atheist physicist. And Krauss says, the picture that science presents to us is in some sense uncomfortable because what we've learned is that we are more insignificant than we ever could have imagined. You could get rid of us and all the galaxies and everything we see in the universe and it will be largely the same. So we're insignificant on a scale that Copernicus never would have imagined. And in addition, it turns out the future is miserable. So the two main lessons that I like to say, I like to give is first, we're insignificant, and second, the future is miserable. Now you might think that that should depress you, but I would argue that in fact, it should embolden you and provide you a different kind of consolation. Because if the universe doesn't care about us and if we're an accident in a remote corner of the universe, and in some sense it makes us more precious, the meaning in our lives is provided by us. We provide our meaning. And we are here by accidents of evolution and the formation of planets, and we should enjoy our brief moment in the sun. We should make the most of our brief moment in the sun because this is all we have. Now you might be thinking, okay, I agree with you. Uh, Nietzsche's nihilism, not really consoling. Krauss's atheism, not really consoling. But that doesn't give us license to believe in fairy tales like the Christmas story, the idea of God incarnating himself into human flesh. I mean, that doesn't give us the freedom and the license to believe spaghetti monsters and this and that. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily mean that the Christmas story is true. So why do we believe that the Christmas story is true why do we also believe that the Christmas story is more consoling than Nietzsche's nihilism, Krauss's atheism, and any other religion this world has to offer? Well, the answer is found in verse 30. And in verse 30, Simeon says very simply, after he holds the baby in his arms, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The word salvation simply means to be saved. Now the question is, what do we need to be saved from? Well, believe it or not, you actually confess what we need to be saved from in one of the readings. You actually heard it in Matthew chapter one. Joseph has a dream and in the dream an angel says to him, Mary is going to conceive of a child and you are to give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sins. Now the word sin is very archaic in our language today. We don't really use it in our regular vernacular and the idea that any of us is a sinner is sort of you know, foreign to us. I think in our culture, everyone sort of assumes that every one of us is a good person. So what I would like to do is do a math experiment with us this morning. Imagine, imagine that once a day, you sin three times. So you think negatively 
about someone, coworker, boss, spouse, kid, friend, you think negatively about someone. Secondly, you say something negatively about someone. Gossip at the water cooler, again, coworker, boss. You know what happens at work all the time. Maybe you're gossiping about some, a friend, a platonic friend. Thirdly, you not only think something negatively, say something negatively, but you act negatively. Nothing crazy like murder and rape and genocide, nothing crazy like that. I'm talking about seemingly innocuous things, like putting your own interest ahead of someone else's, squeezing them out of the subway so you can get in, ignoring the homeless person on the street, not doing a particular favor for someone at work that you could have you know, done a favor for. So you do those three things every day. You think negatively about someone, you speak negatively about someone, you act negatively towards someone. So you sin three times a day. That would mean that in one year you sin 1,095 times. In five years, you would have sinned those sins 5,475 times. Within a span of 80 years, if you did those three things every day, you would have sinned 87,600 times. 87,600 times. Now, would you classify a person that has sinned 87,000 times good or bad? And I didn't even talk about pride, which is the chief of all sins. I didn't talk about how we feel sad when other, per other people succeed. I didn't talk about how uh, we rejoice when other people fail. I didn't talk about our bitterness, our envy, our discontentment, lust. I didn't even talk about any of that stuff. Would you classify someone that has sinned 87,000 times a sinner or not? And in the Bible, this is one of the reasons why it says that no one is righteous, not even one. And yet, if you take a look with me at verse 25, what does it say about Simeon? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. The Bible says no one is righteous, and yet here in verse 25, it says that Simeon was righteous. And whenever we see the word righteous or righteousness in the Bible, it's never because a person earned it, Rather, it's always because a person received it. It's not something achieved through performance, it's always received by someone else, uh, not by our uh, own merits uh, at all. And so, how do we get our sins then forgiven and how do we uh, receive that righteousness? Uh, in verse 35, Simeon says something very unusual to Mary. Uh, in the beginning, he says all these positive things about this baby, and then in verse 35, he says something a little bit negative. And to Mary, he says, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, that's a rather uh, interesting statement. What does he mean when he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul? And what Simeon is doing here is he is giving a prophecy about what this child's life will look like. He's not only thinking about the crib, but unbeknownst to even Simeon, what he's referring to is also a cross. And these two things, the crib and the cross, can never be separated or divorced. You know, there is nothing quite like a mother's love. The process of pregnancy and actually giving birth, there is a special connection that a mother has with a child that a father will never quite understand. And although Jesus was God, he was still Mary's firstborn son. 
And as her firstborn son, she would eventually see him not only praised and worshiped, but 33 years later, Simeon is saying that something excruciating is going to happen to him and that one day he will hang naked on a cross and you're gonna see it and it will pierce your soul. But here's why that is so good news for us. The reason why Jesus dies on a cross is not for his own sins, but the reason why he is sacrificed is for our sins. There was a uh, writing teacher who uh, gave an annual writing exercise to her students all the time. She would begin the story, and then the students would proceed to end the story. And the story goes something like this. There was once an ant and a grasshopper. During the summertime, the ant stored away all of its food for the wintertime while the grasshopper was lazy and just played. Eventually, it was fall, and the leaves started falling from the trees, and winter was right around the corner, and the grasshopper had nothing left to eat. So he sheepishly goes to the ant's door, knocks on it, and says, may I have some food, please? And the teacher says, now you finish the story. And typically, the students write something like the ant shared some of its food with the grasshopper. Some of the more justice-oriented students said the ant shared none of its food with the grasshopper because this is what he deserved, and you know, this is why you're, you know, you're lazy, and I don't owe you a thing. But there was one student that wrote an alternate story that the teacher had never heard before. This student did not say that the ant gave some of its food away or none of its food away, but this particular student said that the ant gave all of its food away so that the grasshopper could live at the expense of the ant's life. Now, you know what this is pointing to. The ant is Jesus. The grasshoppers are us. And the ant sacrifices his life so that we could live. We can never separate the crib from the cross. Uh, David Platt is a pastor in D.C., and he was in another country right outside a temple. And he was sitting down with two other people, and they were having a conversation. And they were, ta- they were both from different religions, and they were both basically saying that all religions are fundamentally the same, just superficially different. And so David Platt paused and said, it's almost like you guys feel like God is on top of this mountain and we're on the bottom of this mountain. I have my path to God, you have your path to God, but in the end, we're all gonna be in the same place. And they smiled and said, finally, you understand, you get it. And David said, well, what if we didn't have to forge a path up to God, but what if God came down the mountain to us to meet us where we're at in our pain and our suffering? And they said, that would be wonderful. if God were to ever do something like that. And he said 2,000 years ago he did. That is the whole point of the Christmas story. The point of the Christmas story is God the Father coming down the steps of heaven with a baby in his arms. But the reason why this baby was born was so that he might die. I have two beautiful daughters, you saw them performing. One could have won an Oscar for a drama and tragedy. Um, I have to do counseling with her later. Um, But you know, I I want them to, I mean, she's almost four, this one's one and a half. I want them to live a long and full life. I want them to experience everything that this world has to offer, all the ups and downs. I want them to get married. I want to be a grandpa. I want them to have kids. I want them to be successful, all that stuff. I want them to serve the Lord. But this child was born that he might die. (laughs) He came that he might die. (laughs) 
And he is our consolation and our only hope because he was sacrificed in our place. And I'll close with the story. Uh, Monty Williams, this name might uh, be familiar with some of you, but Monty Williams is the head coach, the current head coach of the Phoenix Suns. On February 10th, 2016, uh, he received a phone call that no spouse ever wants to receive. And he received a phone call that his wife, Ingrid, was fighting for her life in the hospital. Ingrid that day was in a terrible car accident along with three, of their five, three out of their five kids. Fortunately, the three kids only sustained minor injuries. Ingrid, however, was fighting for her life. And uh, a short time later, uh, Ingrid would eventually lose that battle and she would die. And I was actually watching uh, this funeral service and there was something that Monty said that really, really struck me and that I'll never forget. And during the funeral, Monty said, um, I did not lose my wife, Ingrid. When you lose your wife, when you lose something, you don't know where it is anymore. But I know exactly where she is. She is in heaven. And there was a commentator on ESPN that was also watching this uh, funeral service named Dan Lebetard. And he was struck by the amount of inner fortitude and consolation that Monty could have in the midst of losing his spouse for over 20 years. And I do want to read you what Levitard says on the first page of your bulletin. One of the things I notice in this eulogy is, man, faith even if you don't believe in it, what a comfort in a time like that. Like so many atheists and agnostics want to bash the religious over the head with you're not smart and you believe in fairy tales, but if I could have in my life something that can make me strong in moments like that, how could you not want this kind of strength in your life? Agnostics and atheists will tell you, what the hell are you believing there? Why are you believing that your wife is in a better place, that this was somehow a part of God's plan? But I can't imagine that Bill Maher, for all his money, fame, and intellect, that he would not want in his life the tranquility that comes at the height of tragedy and at the height of personal loss. That if that faith brings you this type of strength, why in God's name would you not want this in your life I don't know what you believe in in our audience, but if you are someone that is stridently atheist, I don't know how you hear that and don't want that in your life. Now, I don't know the religious background of Dan Lebetard. I don't know all of your religious backgrounds. But I do believe that Christianity offers us the resources to deal with our pain, suffering, and death that no other resource does. Certainly not Nietzsche's nihilism, certainly not Krauss's atheism, certainly not humanism. I do believe that Christianity offers us something that nothing else can. We have a God that came downstairs, entered into our neighborhood, and experienced all of, all of the things that we have experienced. If I were him, I would have skipped junior high and senior high and gone right to my 20s but he experienced it all. The pain, the suffering, the rejection, the loneliness, uh, homelessness, he experienced it all. But he not only experienced it all so that he could empathize and sympathize with us, but he went step, one step further and he died on our behalf. And so if you don't believe in God, there is only, 
there's one thing that you can do today, very practically before we leave. One of the things that Simeon did was that he was carrying this baby in his arms, this, this Jesus. One day not knowing that it was Jesus that would one day carry Simeon's sins. And just as Simeon took that baby from Mary and Joseph's arms and received this baby into his life, that's all you have to do too. All you have to do is open up your heart, your chest, and receive and embrace him in your life. And all of the resources that he has provided is for you. And I promise you there is nothing more consoling than that. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I think about um, Simeon and Three times this passage says that the Holy Spirit moved him to go to the temple. The Holy Spirit revealed to him who you were. And my prayer is that your same, the same spirit that moved Simeon to go to the temple and revealed who you were would also uh, move us. Perhaps your spirit is one that moved us to come to church today for the very first time in a long time or ever. And I'm praying that the same spirit would reveal and expose our hearts and... Um, uh, awaken us to the resources that we have uh, in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.